Hello, today I'm with Dr. Rebecca Armstrong, a fellow and tutor in classics at St. Hilda's College. And uh, Dr. Armstrong, I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what got you interested in the classics. Right. Well, uh, my brief sort of biography is, is uh, not very varied. I grew up in the countryside in Devon and um, came to Oxford as an undergraduate. I went to Balliol College to study classics when I was 18 and when I got to about halfway through my third year of what's a four-year course I realised that I hadn't quite finished doing classics so um, I ended up applying to do graduate work and I stayed on at Oxford to do that and um, since I finished my PhD or DPhil as it's called here I've been had various teaching jobs um, at the university and I came to St Hilda's five years ago. Uh, tell, could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of your research in the past? I know that your, your second book uh, that you finished fairly recently? A couple of years ago, yeah. Uh, is entitled... Uh, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, about your second book that you wrote? Right, my, my second book is entitled Cretan Women, Pasiphae, Ariadne and Phaedra in Latin Poetry. And this takes as its subject three women. Pasiphae is, is the mother, Ariadne and Phaedra, her two daughters, um, who come from Crete, as the title would suggest. And they have quite an interesting set of myths surrounding them. Uh, Pasiphae is, is married to King Minos of Crete, who is a, a powerful and, in many depictions of him, quite tyrannical and scary figure. She as many women do in myth, ends up sort of not getting on so well with her husband, although she doesn't get on with him very well for quite an unusual reason, which is that she um, is made to fall in love with a bull and decides to pursue a love affair with the bull rather than doing her duty with her husband as she should be. And in order to get the bull to sort of um, cooperate with her, she has to ask for the, for the help of technician artist type figure who happens to be living in the court of King Minos at the time, he's called Daedalus, that um, many people will know of perhaps from the more famous story of Daedalus and Icarus and the flying too close to the sun and that, that story. Anyway, Daedalus um, is good at building things other than wings and builds Pasiphae a wooden cow um, into which she, she sort of inserts herself and gets wheeled out into the fields and then the bull can do what, what the bull wants to do to cows. And nine months later, she gives birth to a hybrid child, which is half man, half bull, and that's where the Minotaur comes from. So um, so that's her story, kind of, in a nutshell. Then um, her daughters um, grow up, obviously, in a slightly strained atmosphere of the, of the Cretan royal family, um, where their mother has already done this rather odd thing. At any rate, Ariadne um, is the eldest elder sister and she falls in love with Athenian hero called Theseus when he comes over to Crete as part of a group of Athenians who are, for convoluted reasons I shan't go into here, um, being sacrificed to the, being fed to the Minotaur. And Ariadne assists Theseus in killing the Minotaur and escaping from the labyrinth where the Minotaur is incarcerated and they both um, sail off together 
Ariadne thinks happily ever after. Um, unfortunately, Theseus doesn't feel the same way, and he abandons her on an island um, and heads off back, back home on his own. And the end of her story actually is slightly happier than the end of many stories, in that when she's kicking about on the island wondering what to do with herself, the god Dionysus, or Bacchus, comes along and decides that he'll marry her. Um, so she ends up being married to a god rather than a hero, which is a sort of a higher status thing. Although, again, in various versions, she's not necessarily entirely happy about this, even so. And then in a sort of slightly um, odd twist of fate, several years later on, Ariadne's younger sister, Phaedra, is married to Theseus, the same as Theseus has abandoned her sister, in what is in most versions a kind of political alliance, a way of making a treaty between Athens and Crete and putting an end to the obvious sort of bad feeling that existed between them. Phaedra again is susceptible to, to inappropriate love in the same way as her mother and her sister had been um, and her particular choice of um, candidate for her love is Hippolytus who is Theseus's son by another woman, i.e. her stepson. This is not deemed entirely appropriate yet again and again there are different versions of the story in some Phaedra just commits suicide out of general sense of shame. In others, she commits suicide, um, but having written a, a suicide note which accuses Hippolytus of rape, and Theseus believes his wife uh, rather than his son, who tells him that he didn't rape her, which indeed he didn't, and he banishes Hippolytus, and Hippolytus ends up in a bad temper driving his chariot along the shore um, of the sea, out of which comes a bull um, which mangles him to death. Um, so um, stepmother and stepson both end up dead and Theseus finds out belatedly that he trusted the, the wrong one. So, right, that's a very, very long description of the background of the myths. And these obviously, or perhaps not obviously, anyway, these are Greek myths which um, have already been treated by Greek poets and artists. Um, and so when the Romans come to look at them, they're already looking at them through a sort of Greek lens in many ways. So they're already very familiar with the variations and the possibilities for um, exploring things like female psychology or just kind of lewd stories um, that, that already exist within the myths. Roman poetry more widely um, has a very strong and abiding interest in its own relationship with earlier poetry and particularly Greek poetry. So when you come to examine the um, representation of mythical figures like these, you, you almost inevitably end up also um, thinking about the broader ways in which Latin poets relate to their predecessors. So that's one of the strands which actually, um, perhaps disappointingly given the salacious nature of the myths, I, I end up focusing on quite a lot in the book, which is pre precisely to, to, to try to untangle some of the ways in which these particular stories um, are developed by the Roman poet as, in some ways, explorations of and illustrations of their own relationships with earlier poetry. And the figure of Ariadne, for example, is, is used very famously um, in, a, in a long poem by Catullus, which alludes fairly explicitly to 
the earlier tragic treatment of um, a different woman's story, Medea, um, who of course is a, is a child killer and perhaps a rather different figure from the sort of rather passive and abandoned Ariadne. But Catullus includes elements of Medea's speeches of, of anger and self-justification within this sort of more superficially gentle character of Ariadne in his poem. And he also alludes to another version of Medea's story written by Apollonius of Rhodes in a Hellenistic, so relatively late, epic poem, which also draws a connection between Medea and Ariadne. So there you've got, hopefully, if that's clear, um, you've got a, got a sense of the, the complexities of the connections here. So not only can you use... Um, the, Ro the Romans used their own poetry to allude to previous versions of the same myth. They also use previous versions of other myths to sort of add a sense of depth to their characters, or indeed previous versions of another myth which have alluded to the self-same myth that the, the Roman poets are now going to talk about. So this sort of very convoluted, intricate relationship between what, you know, I as a Roman poet am doing now and what they as Greek poets did then is, is very strongly developed. Another example that, that illustrates I guess the same point but, but using slightly different metaphors and ways in is with the story of um, Phaedra who is in Seneca's version of her, her story where he writes a tragedy um, which is very much looking over its shoulder at two Greek tragedies about the same story before Euripides Hippolytus numbers one and two as it were that in the first version you get a shameless Phaedra who propositions Hippolytus and tries to get him into bed and is doesn't have much luck and then in the the second version by Euripides you've got the shameful as it were Phaedra who can see that she's in love with Hippolytus but knows that it's wrong and ends up telling her nurse, and her nurse is the one who propositions Hippolytus, which is not what Phaedra wants at all, and she kills herself. So two very different ways of viewing what's essentially the same story. And when Seneca comes to, to represent Phaedra, he's play, he plays around with both these possible aspects of her character and talks about it very often in terms of um, her own self-consciousness of her family inheritance. So at various points in the play, she's made to say things along the lines of, well, no wonder I am the way I am, just look at what my mother did. She slept with a bull, so, you know, what hope did I ever have? And this sort of idea of a kind of genetic determinacy that works on a psychological level within the play is also, of course, a kind of metaphor for, for the literary tradition. So we can see that you know, Phaedra, of course, is going to have to do what she does because that's what Phaedra always does in literature. Even though there is room for some variation, she's always going to end up in love with Hippolytus. Hopelessly, she's always going to end up killing herself. Fantastic. Anything else about the, uh, about the Cretan women topic that you'd like to, to discuss? Um, I, mean, I guess another aspect that perhaps takes it away from too overt a concentration on this idea of literary tradition is another of the strands that runs through the, these, these myths which the Romans are quite interested in is it, a sort of ideas of what is natural behaviour and what, what is in harmony with nature and what 
um, is imposed upon a kind of slightly chaotic natural world by the advent of civilization. And obviously um, something like going out and, and having sex with a bull can very easily be used to represent a kind of deviance in lots of ways from the civilised norm. And there, there's, there's a great deal in descriptions of, of Pasiphae's um, wanderings out on the, on the Cretan hillsides looking for her, her bull-shaped lover that draws on this sort of apparent contrast yet also similarity to be found between human beings and animals. Um, the Greeks and the Romans, much like modern thinkers, like to see generally speaking a difference between us and them you know humans are different from animals because they are rational because they speak um, you know many of the same reasons that we would or same classifications that we today would use to distinguish man from animals were used in the ancient world as well but Pasiphae by acting as she does and by even sort of getting into this wooden cow which is um, this sort of doubly ironic thing um, she becomes an animal in her animalistic passion, yet it's only because of the ingenuity of a man, Daedalus, um, you know, in, in some ways the application of civilization that can create this wooden cow that's, you know, that, that she's able to, to sort of satisfy her lust. So does that make sense? So yeah. it's a sort of a, 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 an exploration of the tensions between um, wildness and civilization and, and an exploration of where the boundary actually does lie. Um, there's also a great deal in, in the um, characterization of the men in the story, Minos and Theseus, that, that sort of tries to present them as on the one hand representative of reason and order and you know the way that men are sort of typically presented as being steady influences or steadying influences but they're also very often described as being ferocious and in themselves kind of animal-like and it's it's um, often sort of the excuse for the for the women behaving as they did is that they have been oppressed by these by these actually rather harsh and animal-like men whether it be you know minos not being very nice to his wife or being too overbearing as a father or Theseus being uncaring um, as a lover and as a husband. Right. The exploration of the ancients' attitudes towards environment. Um, here you, you just talked about, uh, especially in terms of animals, mm -hmm. but the, the tension between civilization and wilderness. Is this something that you're currently researching with? Uh, I know that you're currently looking at the poetic culture significance poetic and cultural significance of plants and trees in Virgil's poetry. Is that along the similar similar strain of the, the tension between civilization and wilderness? It, it is indeed. I mean, it, it's it's certainly not the only angle that, that, that I'm pursuing, but I guess you could certainly see that as a, as a common thread that's running through. And there, yes, the, the um, obviously the way in which the ve vegetation in the wild is presented is inevitably going to be slightly different from the way that animals are, are presented. But cert certain of the, these sort of ideas about um, an uncertainty of where the dividing line actually goes between man and, and the wild world um, is definitely there. Could you maybe tell us more about um, 
your current research? My motivation for for writing this new book um, is indeed partly growing from this interest that, that I had already um, sort of established in the relationship between man and the, the natural world, um, but also partly from a, from a slightly more prosaic concern that um, people tend to regard the plants in Virgil's poetry, even in poems like the Eclogues and the Georgics, which, which are um, more or less explicitly concerned with the countryside, as a sort of pretty backdrop. And it doesn't really matter whether Virgil has talked about an elm tree or a willow or, um, you know, a, a aconite or a privet or, you know, whatever. It, it, it's just part of the, uh, the sort of the, the cloth of his, of his, the background of his poetry. And my sense um, from, from first reading these poems, um, and perhaps, in fact, almost inevitably influenced by my own upbringing in the countryside with family um, who were very interested in plants and gardens, um, was that surely there was more to it than that. And that whilst I suspect in every single case it's not going to be possible to write um, 25 pages on the significance of the daffodil or whatever, um, as a sort of cumulative thing, um, it very much is possible to see ways in which Virgil is using these plants as something very much more complex and interesting than simple embellishment or background for his poetry. And to come back to the idea of negotiating tensions between man and nature, a very good example of that is found in attitudes towards um, sacred groves as sort of obviously groups of trees which are demarcated either literally by sort of walls and fences um, or just through the fact that everybody knows um, that you know this particular clump of trees is sacred to Jupiter or whoever and here we're given a sort of interesting mixture of, of these two things because in some ways these are absolutely wild places there are very strong prohibitions about um, you know, you're not supposed to cut down the wood or if you do cut down the wood you, there are certain um, religious processes that you have to go through and you sacrifice a pig and you make a particular prayer before you do anything just to make sure that the god in question is not going to object to you um, chopping down the trees and certainly you should never chop down all of them anyway that you make the sacrifices before you thin the grove rather than annihilating it completely which would obviously be wrong so because these are places which which are um, emphatically untouched by man in many ways there seem to be very much wild places but on the other hand they're spaces which are um, delineated and they have sometimes literally walls around them and sometimes there's just a sense that everyone in the area knows that you know this particular grove is sacred to a god um, and this sort of very act of uh, sort of uh, distinguishing the place and fencing it or um, making it known within human circles to be a particular thing, to have these particular associations, in some ways brings that very wild, untouched space closer to the human realm than a kind of undifferentiated, massive forest might be. Um, and um, I mean this is obviously background to, to Virgil's poetry but with 
within his works um, at various points you do get that Groves talked about and sometimes talked about in a conventional way um, where it's clear that they are you know, clumps of trees dedicated to a particular god which should not be touched. But he also gives us quite a few examples of times when these trees do get cut down and get cleared. There's a famous passage in the Georgics, for example, where a farmer who has sort of, in some sense, has been resentful of the idea that part of his land has been left idle with these useless trees growing on top of it, um, has finally had enough and he chops down the trees and ploughs up the earth underneath, which of course is going to give him a very nice fertile patch of land to start growing his cabbages on or whatever he's going to grow there. But the way in which the poet describes this moment um, sort of perfectly encapsulates the ambivalence that, that a, sort of any Roman or Italian would feel about this kind of thing. Because on the one hand, we approve of the farmer. He's, he's a sort of a classic figure of Roman um, hardiness and um, morality even. They like to think of themselves as all really farmers, regardless of how sort of fat and luxurious they actually become. So we approve of what he's doing, he's making the earth work hard and we like work and productivity. But on the other hand, there's also this reflection of what has been lost. And um, the poet talks about the destruction of the ancient homes of the birds um, as part of the, the sort of the side effect of um, cutting down this grove. So while at this point there's no hint that any particular god will, will sort of smite the ploughman with a thunderbolt for having dared to uproot the um, the sacred grove. It's not even necessarily a sacred grove, but anyway, it's an ancient grove. So so there's not necessarily a sense that, that, that he's, he's courting danger in that quite such an overt way. There is nevertheless a sense of um, anxiety about what he has just done. And then when you get into the Aeneid, there are some very interesting and quite troublesome moments where Aeneas himself, the great hero of the poem, um, who's supposed in so many ways to represent the roots of Romanness, and in particular has has a sort of strong role as being a kind of religious role model. Um, he's, his, one of his epithets, his most famous epithet is Pius Aeneas. Um, he actually engages in chopping down um, trees which definitely are sacred to a particular particular god to fullness um, as a way of make, of clearing the ground for the battle that he's he's going to fight with his enemy Turnus and here again we're, we're, we're sort of given the as it were the first part of the of the traditional story man cuts down sacred grove this is a bad thing but we're not given the end of the story which should be God comes and punishes man for cutting down sacred grove so there's a sense yet again in which we you know we're, we're left um, to explore the ideas of what man can do to nature within the context I suppose of a world where it, it seems perhaps increasingly clear that man can do an awful lot to nature and get away with it without nature fighting back and the question is perhaps whether man should restrain himself rather than rely on mysterious divine forces to sort of create a backlash. Which is, I guess, yeah, I mean, it's something we're thinking about nowadays quite a lot as well. Um, yeah, yeah. You, 
you mentioned that, uh, that there's a, a renaissance of, of the, uh, what is this, um, because of current events, because of, I'm not sure, in your email you mentioned that, oh, that right, um, yeah. today people are becoming uh, interested again or they're starting to look again at this, uh, the, the, the ancient attitude towards mm. the environment. And you just alluded to it there again. What, what exactly, or could you maybe expound on that? What, what's going on lately that uh, would maybe cause this? Well, I guess um, it's, I suppose it's largely the sort of sense that we have, uh, well, have for, for the past several decades, but, but very much during the past decade, an increasing consciousness of um, the environment in general. And um, obviously we are facing environmental catastrophe of a scale the Romans probably could never have imagined except you know in their sort of wildest dreams but nevertheless similar ideas about precisely what right we have as a sort of dominant species on the planet to exploit the planet's resources are things that the ancients had already um, inevitably <laughs> thought about um, so there's this sort of sense of we, we have evolved or been created as beings which um, have the ability to um, to create things to modify nature to you know blow up whole mountainsides if we want to you know can sort of basically remodel the entire earth to, to make it fit our own desires and designs but should we do that um, what's the point in doing that and does there come a point, having done that, when things are going to start um, hitting back? Um, I mean, this is, I suppose, a little bit along the lines of um, James Lovelock's theories about about Gaia and that this sort of idea of you know the Earth as as this this kind of living organism which will put up with quite a lot of things and eventually will kind of you know shrug and we will be shaken off her surface because. Um, you know, we, we have done too many terrible things. I mean, if, I don't think Lovelock is trying to um, imply that there's a moral dimension to this, which the ancients certainly would feel that there was, but that, you know, the earth will endure and will will um, put up with abuse, but only to a certain extent. And you see this sort of illustrated through myths so from, from way back with the idea that the earth produces all sorts of things and she's actually kind of indiscriminate and that we are not as far as the earth is concerned a privileged species and she produces us and we are her children in one way or another she also produces giants and weird monsters that try to kill us so there's you know there's already the sense that she that, that, that our kind of uh, assumption that we are somehow the chosen few or the special ones is it's not necessarily right from the point of view of the earth herself but also much more practically Roman writers like Pliny um, who's a bit later than Virgil for example talks at some length about ways in which natural resources can be exploited but that it's, it's stupid and counterproductive to exploit them to extinction um, so the Romans very well aware of problems of deforestation or over mining or even overfishing. Um, believe it or not <laughs> so there's some uh, connections some interesting thank you Dr. Armstrong for, for the interview and for talking to us appreciate it thank you